All right, brothers, as we get ready to go in the word, let me open us in prayer. Join me as we pray. Father, we thank you for another morning. Thank you for the life that you've given us today and the life that we have in Christ. Lord, we pray today for those who are weary this morning that you would give us strength. For those of us who are doubting this morning that you would increase our faith. For those of us who lack wisdom, which is all of us, Lord, that you would give us your wisdom. As we open the word, Lord, help us to see more clearly and help us to see Jesus. Uh, We've come uh, to be encouraged in you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So as you know, we've been studying prayers, and you're probably getting it from all angles if you're at our church on Sundays, because we're talking about the Lord's Prayer on Sunday. We're talking about all these different prayers on Tuesday, and so it's a good time as we're closer to the end than the beginning of this study just to check in and say, how's it going? We're talking about prayer, but are we growing in prayer? Are we growing in the habit and the practice and the love of prayer? Is prayer becoming more natural for us, like breathing? I've noticed in my own life, it's relatively easy for me to talk about prayer, to write about prayer, teach about prayer, but it's harder for me to stop everything and get quiet and actually pray. I don't know about you, but I'm just asking, how's it going? And the challenge of prayer actually makes sense if we understand what prayer is, what's actually happening when we pray, and we understand to whom we're praying, and we understand that we have an enemy who doesn't want us to pray. There was a minister who was born in 1860 named Samuel Chadwick, and he wrote one of my favorite quotations on prayer. He says, the one concern of the devil is to keep Christians from praying. He fears nothing from prayerless studies, prayerless work, and prayerless religion. He laughs at our toil, mocks at our wisdom, but he trembles when we pray. Just reorients me to the significance of prayer. And makes me ask, is that the way that I'm approaching it? So this morning, (laughs) I just ask, do we pray? And if we pray, why do we pray? And if we pray, what do we pray? Those things are all sort of in play as we look at 1 Kings 3. This amazing passage where the Lord essentially comes to Solomon and asks him, what do you want me to do for you, more or less? And we get a window into the young king's prayer life. We don't necessarily get Solomon's age, but you can triangulate around and say he was maybe around 20 years old when he took the throne. So imagine that. You might have a 20-year-old in your life. (laughs) If the Lord came to them and said, what do you want me to give you? What would they say? For what would they ask? So this passage reveals a lot. It first reveals a lot about the Lord and his heart and Solomon, and then eventually about us. So if the Lord came to you this morning and said, what do you want me to do for you? What would you pray for? What's amazing is it's not really a hypothetical this morning. In in one of his hymns, John Newton writes, Thou art coming to a king, large petitions with thee bring. For his grace and power are such, none can ever ask too much. So are we praying? Why are we praying? What are we praying? Let's turn now to 1 Kings 3. You have it on your handout. You can look at it in your Bible. It's 1 Kings 3, starting in verse 3, going up to verse 15. 
Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, you have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So where are we in God's story briefly? If you remember, we've studied it in here. Judges, after a period of rule by judges, Israel cried out to the Lord. They wanted to have a king like everyone else around them. And God gave them a king. And the first king was Saul. And we read in 1 and 2 Samuel about the failed rule of Saul and then the, the, the rise of David and as David the man after God's own heart and after First and Second Samuel we land here in First Kings. First Kings picks up the story with the transition from David's rule to his son Solomon's rule. Chapter 1, Solomon's anointed as king. Chapter 2, David sort of gives his deathbed charge instructions to his son Solomon. Uh, David dies and Solomon's reign is established as some rivals are eliminated. And then here in chapter three, we have Solomon's prayer for wisdom, and we won't cover it, but right after this passage is this amazing story where God blesses Solomon with wisdom in the situation with the mothers and the baby who has died and the baby who's still alive. Go read that. It's really an amazing story. So this morning, I want to talk about three things, why Solomon prayed, what Solomon prayed, and why it matters for us. So first, why did Solomon pray? And I want you to see sort of a motivational why in terms of what moves him to pray, but also a foundational why, what sort of anchors him as he prays. So notice that the Lord comes to Solomon. The Lord makes the first move. Like Christianity, prayer always starts with the Lord. We are not initiating. We're responding to the one who's always coming after us. The Lord appears to Solomon in a dream which seems strange to us, but it's a common occurrence in the Old Testament. And you wonder why. Well, 
I think at least on one level, when we're asleep, <laughs> we're weak, we're vulnerable, we're open, our guard is down. So it's fascinating to see all the times the Lord comes to people in the night, even in a dream or a vision. And what does the Lord say to Solomon in verse 5? Ask what I shall give you. What's behind that is the generosity of God. And we don't usually talk about it, but the generosity of God, if you look, is everywhere in the Bible. In the beginning, what does the Lord give Adam and Eve? Really, paradise. The, the whole garden minus one tree. What do they end up focusing on? <laughs> the one tree. What does the Lord give Abraham and Sarah? In their old, old age, a promise. And then eventually a child, miraculous, a child of promise. What does the Lord give Moses and the people of Israel? Miraculous deliverance from Egypt. Salvation from their captors. What does the Lord give his people as you continue to walk through the Old Testament and he walks with his people through the Old Testament? He gives them his word, his promises. He gives them land. He gives them rescue. He gives them leadership in prophets, priests, and kings. The generous God giving his people all these things. And if that wasn't enough, the Lord, in a sense, saves his best for last. Because in the New Testament, what does the Lord give to us? He gives to us himself. John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave. What did he give? His only son. The father giving the son is the greatest gift. It's the greatest argument for his generosity. Paul uses it in that way in Romans 8, 32, when he says, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Is this your vision of God? a loving father who delights to give good gifts to his children. Depending on who you are, where you're coming from, who your father was on earth, that may not be your vision of God. Is he a distant father to you? Do you have to nag him to get his attention? And even when you get his attention, you don't think he's actually gonna come through for you. That other picture of God is one that doesn't compute with Jesus. In Matthew 7, 7 through 11, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him. When my son Will was around three, I think, if I remember, he asked for an orange whistle for Christmas. <laughs> you know, like a referee's whistle. I have no idea where he got the idea or why he asked for it, but you better believe when he said, what I want for Christmas is an orange whistle. We found an orange whistle and it eventually drove us crazy. God the Father is a much better father than I am, but do we trust his generous heart toward us? And so you begin to see that prayer is a battleground. God is able, but we doubt his power. God is willing, but we doubt his goodness. And God is all sufficient, but we think we're sufficient. And we hear Jesus saying, apart from me, you can do nothing. And we think, well, can't I do something? The Lord says that he is our helper, but we rarely feel helpless. 
So the Bible paints this picture of a God who's able, willing, all-sufficient, eager to hear from us, eager to respond. He is so generous. If anything should motivate us to pray, that should. Does the generosity of God motivate you to pray? If not, what motivates you to pray? Maybe it's guilt. Lord, I've been gone for a while. <laughs> Feel guilty. I'm coming back. Maybe it's feeling stuck. Lord, I've been trying to figure this out. I don't know how I got into this mess. Could you get me out of it? Or maybe it's just coming to the end of yourself and then you pray, Lord, I, I can't do it. Help. Our motives are never perfect. The Lord meets us there when we come to him. But don't we want to come to him aware of who we are in all of our need and then aware of who he is in all of his glorious generosity? When you think about motivation in prayer, it's also helpful to think about what keeps us from praying, what might motivate us not to pray. So circumstances are a part of that. We're busy. We're weary. Sometimes we give ourselves as men more to entertainment, you know, fantasy football or watching the game or whatever it might be. Our phones might keep us from praying. I thought this week, what if my relationship with God was more like my relationship with my phone, where I'm always connected? <laughs> I'm habitually looking to it, filling every spare moment with it. That's probably what prayer should be like, not our relationship with our phone. So unbelief also keeps us from praying. Beyond the circumstances, there's this unbelief that, may, you know, maybe deep down God isn't able or God isn't good. I've got these past experiences of disappointment or unanswered prayers, and so I don't know if I want to pray. And there can be a kind of functional atheism that keeps us from praying. Or we might say we believe this about the Lord, but when the rubber meets the road, we kind of live like he doesn't exist. So it's up to me. Why pray? It's on me. So in the midst of all that, we have this generous God calling us to pray. And you remember what Paul prays in Ephesians 3, that God is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. So again, does his generosity move us to pray? That's the motivational why. Let's talk about the foundational why, which I'll call the love and faithfulness of God. So before Solomon makes his prayer request, he does something else. It's really fascinating. What is he doing? Even in his dream state, he's looking back. He's rehearsing God's love and faithfulness to his father David. Look at verse 6. Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. He remembers God's story in his father's life at the beginning of his prayer. And then he's rehearsing God's love and faithfulness to him, to Solomon. He says in verse 7, And now, O Lord my God, you've made your servant, he's talking about himself, king, in place of David my father, although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or come in. Just feel sort of his humility and his awareness of the situation that he's in as he comes to the Lord in prayer. And then he goes even further back. He's rehearsing God's love and faithfulness to the people of Israel all the way back, you could say, to Abraham. Verse 8, And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Where's that coming from? Genesis 15, 5, remember, the Lord takes Abraham outside 
says, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you're able to number them, so shall your offspring be. Solomon knew the word of God. And he knows because he knows the story that he's walking around in the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. God's people, his chosen people. And now Solomon as a young man has been raised up to rule over them. And that's overwhelming to him. And so Solomon's prayer reveals a lot about him. He's this young man, but he's not living in his own little world like so many of us as young men. He has this sense of being part of a much bigger story. The story of God and his people has become Solomon's story. And so when Solomon comes to pray, he has this really firm foundation. He can stand on the love and faithfulness of God and press down on it as he prays. And it's only right that his prayer starts here because there's this spirit of worship and gratitude and humility that sets the tone for the rest of his prayer. There's this awareness that the Lord has been at work for a long, long time and an expectation that the one who has been faithful in the past will be faithful in the present right now. So this is the foundational why of prayer, God's perfect love and faithfulness. And think about it, that's an infinitely better starting point than starting with, well, God, this is why I deserve to be heard. <laughs> or let me just get straight to my, my needs and demands. So think about it this way. How many verses are there between the beginning of our prayers and our requests? How much do we say between saying, Father, and then making our needs known? What if we immersed ourselves in God's word and God's story so that more and more our first instinct is not to run through our list of requests or demands, but to rehearse God's love and faithfulness to us, to our family, to our church, to the saints who have gone before us, looking back over all of church history and the, the story of redemption, just being amazed this is who God is and I'm walking around in that story because he's made me his own too. So what if it became second nature to rehearse the love and faithfulness of God toward us, seen most clearly in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus? So why should we pray? We're motivated by the generosity of God. We're anchored, founded in the love and faithfulness of God. And from there, we call upon the name of the Lord. It's a little bit about why Solomon prayed. Let's talk briefly about what Solomon prayed. This will be a short point. For what did Solomon not ask? <laughs> he had health, but he didn't ask for a long life. He had power, but he didn't ask for more power. He had money, but he didn't ask for more money. He had enemies, surely, but he didn't ask for the Lord to strike them down. <laughs> what did he ask? He asked for wisdom for an understanding mind and for discernment. Look at verse nine. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people that I may discern between good and evil for who is able to govern this, your great people. He asked for wisdom. And what's beautiful is it's not just for himself. He asked for wisdom so that he might be a blessing to God's people in the role that God was calling him to play. And I'm just amazed at this. I think, how many 20-year-olds <laughs> are praying for wisdom? How many 40-year-olds, how many 60-year-olds are praying for wisdom? There's, the Lord is doing something in his heart that he knows he needs wisdom. 
And then you say, well, what did the Lord think about what Solomon asked? Well, the passage tells us in verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And shouldn't that be the goal of our prayers? Shouldn't that be the goal of our whole life, that we would please the Lord? Find out what pleases the Lord, Paul writes in one of his letters. We want to glorify the Lord. This prayer request pleased the Lord. Think for a minute about the items on your prayer list. If the Lord answered those requests, how would it change your life and the life of those around you? If the Lord gave you a better job, more money, more power, the ability to retire, a longer life, what would you do with it? If the Lord gave you a wife or children, if you don't have those things, what would you do with that opportunity? We want a lot of things, but we don't always realize the challenge these things bring, especially if we lack wisdom to know how to handle them. By God's grace, a young Solomon knew he needed wisdom, and the Lord was so pleased to give it to him. So think about that. Are your requests pleasing to the Lord? I think what we see in here that sort of the DNA of a request that's pleasing to the Lord is that it's not just focused on Solomon's life, making his life better and more comfortable. <laughs> it's focused on giving Solomon what he needs to serve God's purposes for his life, to glorify him, to be a blessing to other people. Not a prayer focused on building my little kingdom, but a prayer focused on building God's eternal kingdom and being part of that. So Solomon, what does he, what does he pray for? He prays for wisdom. So why does it matter? Last point, Solomon prayed for wisdom. Why does it matter? Why is asking for wisdom so pleasing to the Lord? Or we might say, why should we ask for wisdom? So I want to talk about wisdom for a few minutes. I've been sort of living in the Proverbs and wisdom for quite a while, this, pretty much this whole year. And so I feel like I have way too much to say. <laughs> but I'll give you sort of a brief, brief summary of some things I think would be helpful in, uh, in sort of relating to this passage. So to start, think about what David said to Solomon just before he died. You don't have to turn there, but it's in 1 Kings 2, very beginning of 1 Kings 2. It said, when David's time to, to die drew near, he commanded Solomon, his son, saying, I'm about to go the way of all the earth. Be strong, show yourself a man, and keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways and keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules, and his testimonies, as it's written in the law of Moses, that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn, that the Lord may establish his word that he spoke concerning me, saying, if your sons pay close attention to their way to walk before me in faithfulness with all their heart and with all their soul, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Imagine your dad saying that to you. <laughs> What's great about David's charge to Solomon is the centrality of the word of God. He talks about having a relationship and a walk with the Lord and wholehearted devotion. But you might say, especially when you think about what Solomon prays for, that something's missing the need for wisdom to apply God's word to the complex realities of life. Because Solomon had the word, but he doesn't just pray, Lord, help me to obey the word. He prays for wisdom. So what is wisdom? There's a lot of things you could say. It's, it's knowledge applied. It's not just knowing stuff. It's not just having knowledge. It's understanding how to apply it to life. It's competence in handling the complex realities of life, which we're all facing every day. 
And it's knowing what to do in the moments, and there are many, where there's not a chapter or verse in the Bible that you can go to and say, this helps me make this decision or navigate this relationship. So a few examples. The word tells me to love my wife the way Christ loved the church. But how do I do that? When her mother passes away, when she's exhausted, when she's grieving, I need wisdom. Or the word tells me to be generous and care for the poor, but how do I do that in a way that actually helps people and doesn't hurt them? Because I can sort of not violate God's law and do great damage if I try to care for people without wisdom. And the, Lord, the word tells me Jesus is the king of kings. He's sovereign over the rulers of this world. And yet here we are on another election day. How do we glorify the Lord as Christians who by God's providence are living in America? We need the Lord's wisdom. Or take maybe your situation. You want to provide for your family. You get an offer to do a job that'll pay you more, but you won't be with your family. Should you take the job, make more for your family? If the balance of life isn't good and you're not with your family as much, how, what do you do? You need God's wisdom. So Solomon had the word, but he still needed wisdom. Can you begin to feel the weight of our need for wisdom? Because all day long we're facing these situations where God's word doesn't tell us exactly what to do. We need his wisdom to apply his timeless truth to these ever-changing circumstances. So this morning, I'm encouraging us to pray for wisdom on a regular basis. And as we pray, here are a few things, just reminders about wisdom. Wisdom is a perspective. It's about how we see the Lord, ourselves, and the world. In Proverbs 9.10, it says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. So Proverbs multiple times basically says that, that the starting point of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. Fearing the Lord means he's the most important thing, most important person in our lives. And it's not a terror fear. It's a worship fear. We know that he's perfectly holy. We, we probably should be terrified if, if it was just God and his holiness and me as a sinner. But we also know he's perfectly loving. And so he doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. And when you put those things together with the gospel, the Lord brings that reality home to our hearts. And we don't just be like, oh, he's forgiven me. I'll do whatever I want. No, there's this worship fear, this joyful awe and reverence that I want to live in a way that pleases him because he has become the center of my life. And it's a whole new perspective. And now I'm in touch with reality because I know at the heart of reality is this God. And he made a world with deep order and meaning. And so I see that there's a fabric to creation and it's good. But I also know, perspective, that because of sin, creation is broken. That fabric is torn and that brokenness is going to touch every aspect of my life. But I also know that because of Jesus, this world is being redeemed. The fabric is being <laughs> woven back together and we can see the beauty even in the brokenness. And then finally, in the end, we know that Jesus will return and make all things new. So it's creation, fall, redemption, consummation. That's a perspective that the Christian has walking through this world that other people don't have. It's a perspective we bring into every complex reality. And that's the perspective we need if we want to live a life of wisdom. As we pray for wisdom, are we asking the Lord to give us perspective so that we see him and we see ourselves 
and the world through these gospel-centered, Christ-centered, word-centered lenses. Wisdom is a perspective. Wisdom also is a path. This path language is all over Proverbs. Here's one example, Proverbs 4.18. The path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. So Proverbs sees life as a path. There's a path of wisdom as we walk in relationship with God and become wise. There's a path of folly as we walk apart from God and sometimes walk with companions of fools and become foolish. Today, most people aren't looking for a path. That's probably always been true. Most people aren't looking for a path. They're looking for a door. They're looking for something they can walk through and... I'm here. I've got it. I've figured it out. They're not looking for wisdom. They're looking for quick fixes and easy solutions. But the biblical picture of wisdom is not arriving. It's not downloading. It's not, I've told another class this, it's not like Neo in the Matrix who plugs into something, I know Kung Fu. It doesn't work like that. It's walking step by step by step with God, with his people. It's giving ourselves to the means of grace which can seem boring day after day. There's no shortcut to biblical wisdom. We learn it over years and decades of walking the path in relationship with the Lord. So as we pray for wisdom, are we asking the Lord to keep us on the path so that we're becoming men who are wise? Wisdom's a path. We need the Lord's help to stay on the path the rest of our lives. And sadly, Solomon starts very well. But if you look at the end of his life, it seems like there were times that he went off the path. We have to keep walking. When we come to the New Testament, wisdom comes into sharper focus. What was concealed, you might say, in Proverbs is revealed in the New Testament. What was personified in Proverbs, like in woman wisdom, Proverbs 8 and 9, is embodied in the Gospels because ultimately wisdom is a person. It's a perspective, it's a path, it's a person. It's easy to miss this if you're not studying wisdom literature, but the New Testament consistently presents Jesus as the wisdom of God. At the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something shocking. Matthew 7, 24, Jesus doesn't say everyone who hears the words of God and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He says everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. He's basically saying, I am the wisdom of God. You want to be wise? Hear what I'm saying and do it. <laughs> if you think that's not clear enough, consider what he says in Matthew 12, 42. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. I can understand why the religious leaders didn't like Jesus. Solomon considered the wisest man to ever live, and Jesus stands up and has the audacity to say, something greater than Solomon is right here. So when we come to Jesus, we see the wisdom of God on full display. If wisdom is, is knowledge applied, no one's wise like Jesus. If it's competence in handling complex realities of life, no one's wise like Jesus. Think about all the impossible situations he was confronted with, how he always responded with perfect wisdom. If it's knowing what to do in all the moments where there's not a chapter and verse to guide us, no one is wise like Jesus. So he had the perspective. He walked that path with his father, and he was the person. Do you know him? If you want the wisdom of God, 
Are you looking for it somewhere else? Because ultimately you find it here in Jesus. As we come to him, he remakes us in his image, and that includes his wisdom. If we want the wisdom of God, there's one more thing we need to remember. It's that the wisdom of God is not the same as the wisdom of this world. Think about what's wise and what's, what seems compelling and good and authoritative in the world. And now think about what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 and following. He says, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Where's the one who is wise? Where's the scribe? Where's the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So the world's greatest wisdom is folly to God. And God's greatest wisdom, which we see in the cross, is folly to the world. So something's got to give. If we're going to pray for wisdom, we need to count the cost. Because if Jesus answers our prayer, our lives will look foolish to the world around us. But the truth is, everyone in this world is a fool for something. Would you rather be a fool for Christ, as Paul describes himself, or be a fool without Christ? The world needs to see men who are unashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God for salvation for every kind of fool. <laughs> so let me close with these words from James 1, 5 through 6. In a way, James ties it all together. A generous God, a need for wisdom, and a call to pray. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's driven and tossed by the wind. Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for the reminders of what motivates us to pray. Lord, I pray that we'd be motivated by your generosity. And Lord, we'd be anchored thinking of your love and faithfulness. And we would see, Lord, based on who we are and what we need and what we're facing even today in relationships, at work, at home, uh, with, with a wife, with children, with an election, how much we need your wisdom. And Lord, that we would know how much it pleases you, that we would ask for wisdom, that we would know how to walk with you and walk like Christ in this world. So bless our conversations as we talk about these things. Help us to open up. And Lord, we pray that you would give us your wisdom today. For your name and your glory's sake, we pray. Amen. Thank you, brothers. Have a good discussion.